We're continuing now in our series through the Gospel of John. The last several months we've been going section by section through, the, uh, through John's account of Jesus' life and ministry. And today we find ourselves in chapter 7. Okay, So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 7. And here's what we have to do today. To understand what's going to happen next in our story, the next section of our story, um, we're going to need to read almost the whole chapter. Okay, we're going to need to, need to cover about 40 verses because um, this, about these 40 verses are, are telling one event. So to understand what's happening in this one event, we need to make sure that we get the context here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read basically almost the whole chapter of, of uh, John 7, and then I'm going to pull out just a few major messages that really uh, struck me this week in my study, okay? So John chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1. After this... Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much here. We do thank you for your word, but God, it can be overwhelming at times. Um, And so, God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us, give us clarity, help us to understand. And Lord, we we pray that you would not only help us to hear your word, but you'd help us to hear and obey. Help us to hear these words and put them into practice. Um, God, I pray that as we study that you would be honored in all things, that you would be glorified, um, and that, God, that you would speak to every single heart here. We're all in different places on our journey. I pray, Lord, that you'd meet us right where we are today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a lot of content, right? We're not going to talk about all that, don't worry. Um, but again, we needed to kind of look at the chapter almost in its entirety so that we can understand this is all happening at the Feast of Booths. So we need to back up here and, and look, at, look at how this uh, all goes down. So Jesus is with his disciples and his brothers in Galilee, and the Feast of Booths is about to go down in Jerusalem. And his brothers tell him, you know, Jesus, you, you should go up. This is, you need to make yourself public. And he says, no, it's not my opportune time yet. He says, no, it's not the right time yet. You guys go. So the brothers leave, and then a few days later, Jesus goes up in secret to the feast. Um, Now, we need to make sure that we're all on the same page here. So let me explain to you what the Feast of Booths uh, was and and is. Uh, The Feast of Booths is is an annual celebration that the Israelites uh, had to remember how God led them and cared for them while they were wandering in the wilderness towards the promised land. Okay, it was a time where they remembered how God cared for them, how he led them, how he provided for them. And during this eight-day feast, this was the most like joyous, celebratory, ruckus kind of uh, festival that they had out of, out of their major festivals. There was this eight-day feast. There was a bunch of food, a bunch of wine, a bunch of dancing. It was a good time. Um, but, but beyond that, there were a bunch of rituals that they engaged in throughout these eight days um, that served to help remind them of how God provided for them as they were wandering. For example, um, during these, this eight-day feast, everybody um, slept outside in these little huts or these little booths. That's what's called the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Shelters. So they would do these little you know, makeshift lean-to, these little tents. So it's like an eight-day campout, essentially. Okay, so they, they camped out for these eight days, and, and it was a reminder about how God provided for them when they lived in tents, before they had a permanent home, and how God, uh, God, God provided for them. In addition to that, Another thing they did was on, on the last day, on the eighth day, that uh, John called it the great day. It's the climax of the festival. What would happen is the priest would go and he would go to the pool of Siloam uh, and he would uh, take this golden pitcher and he would uh, fill it up with some, some water from the pool and everybody's around, all the people around watching the priest do this and then they would all walk back to the temple. The priest would take this golden pitcher full of the water and he would lead this processional back to the temple and all along the way... This big processional, this big parade is happening. Everybody's dancing and singing, and they're singing this line out of Isaiah chapter 12, and it says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Everybody's singing this line. Um, and then they, they'd make it to the temple, and they'd pour out the water at the altar. Why did they do this? 
Again, they're celebrating how God, this, this whole festival is about celebrating how God provided for them in the wilderness. And a really important way, significant way that Jesus did that was he provided water for the Israelites. There was this time where they were incredibly thirsty, they were parched, they were out in the desert, and then God miraculously provides water from a rock. Remember? He, 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 water flows from a rock, and the Israelites are saved. Their lives are saved. So, with that in mind, with, with, that, with that perspective, we're all on the same page now. Let's look again at what Jesus does and says right at the end of this reading, right, right towards the end of uh, the chapter. At the climax of the feast, on the great day, John says, at the, at the, in the midst of this processional, I believe, Jesus stands up and interrupts the festival. Okay, and if you look at the wording, he's not, this isn't a part of his teaching. It says that he just cries out. It's just he's like bellows it out. It's like he can't contain it. He cries out, and this is what he says. He says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I will fill you up, and you will overflow. You will be a fountain of living water. So do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm the rock. I'm the rock from whom the blessings will flow. I, I, I am the well of salvation. He says, come to me and drink, and you will overflow with living water. Jesus is the rock. And from John chapter 7, we learn three things about Jesus, our rock. Jesus, our rock, is, is our provision. The rock is pure, and the rock is peculiar. He's, he's our provision, he's pure, and he's peculiar. First, the rock brings us provision. I've already mentioned that he claims this, that, that he is our provider, that he provides living water. But I don't want to just point out to you today that he provides living water. What I want to do is just mention how he provides the living water. Um, if you have your Bibles, put your finger in John 7 and turn with me over to Exodus 17. That's If you're new to the Bible, it's to your left. Exodus 17. Second book of the Bible. All right, and, and where we're going to read from is, is uh, the context I already shared with you. The Israelites are wandering through the desert. They're on their way towards the promised land. They're in the desert. They're getting thirsty. This is what happens. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people Taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which with, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. All right, so you catch that? Um, Israelites are grumbling, they're thirsty. Um, and, and we get that. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable request, right? I'm, I'm thirsty, and you brought me to a place where there's no water. But, but the, what they do is they start, they start uh, again, there's a complete lack of faith in God. They, they, they start grumbling against God. They start complaining. They're like, God, we don't like the way that you are handling our lives. We, we wish that we were, you wish you had never even messed with us in Egypt. We, we wish we were back in slavery because we don't like how you're handling uh, our life today. We don't, this doesn't make sense. We don't get it. Sure, none of us have ever been there before, right? 
Um, but they, they're saying, they're, so they're essentially just grumbling against the Lord. And then they start taking it out of Moses because Moses is God's mouthpiece. And they get close to actually to the point of stoning him. And so Moses goes to God and pleads his case and says, okay, God, what do I, what do, I do with these people? So, so God says, tells Moses, listen, he says, go get the elders and get the staff, the staff that I gave you. And I want you to go up to this rock. And at, at this point, we would naturally think, okay, um, uh, you know, God is going to judge the people for their rebellion, for their grumbling, for their complaining, for condemning God and, and, and questioning a lack of faith. Um, because the elders, he said, go get the elders. The elders were often acting as the judges over the nation of Israel. So, so God said, go get your judges and go get that staff. And that staff was an important symbol of God's judgment. Remember, this is the same staff that he used in Egypt with all the plagues. He's saying, go get the judges and go get the staff of judgment and go up on that rock. And at this point, you're thinking, they wanted to put Moses on trial. Those people are going to get put on trial. God's going to judge the people for all of their rebellion, all of their grumbling. But then look what he does. God says, Moses, I'm going to stand before you on the rock. You ever caught that? God says, I am going to stand. The presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God is going to dwell over the rock. And I want you to bring the elders, and I want you to put them around me, bring those judges, put them around me, and I want you to take that staff that's in your hand, the staff of judgment, the rod of judgment, and I want you to hit it. Put yourself in Moses' shoes for one minute. He said to hit, to, to strike it. The, the presence of God is dwelling over the rock. That, that sacred thing that nobody could touch, nobody could see, you couldn't be in its presence because of its sheer holiness. And then God says, take your rod and hit it, strike it. You want me to hit the presence of God? Can you imagine the, the confusion and the terror that Moses must have felt? He said, strike it. And Moses doesn't understand, but he lifts up his staff as God's presence dwells on that rock. And he strikes the rock. He brings down the rod upon him. And then the water gushes out. The blessings come out. The, the living water comes out. The Israelites are saved. Now, of course, did Moses hurt the presence of God? Absolutely not. Can, can the staff of Moses strike you know, and pierce the, the Shekinah glory of God? Absolutely not. But do you see the picture that's painted? Do you see the, pic- the, the, the picture that's being painted all the way back in Exodus chapter 17? God is saying, because I take the stroke. Because I am struck, you will be blessed. Because I am struck, you will experience salvation. You will be saved. You will experience the living water. There was, there was a judgment necessary for that rebellion. But God took the judgment. He took the stroke and we were blessed. That's the picture that's being painted. So do you see what Jesus, at, at the end of this feast, when he stands up and says, Come to me and drink. And they're celebrating what's happened at the rock. He's saying, I am the rock. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I am going to be struck. I am going to be judged for your rebellion. And you can be blessed. You can find that salvation. That's just been blowing my mind this week as I'm studying that. In Revelation chapter 22, we're told that at the end of all time, the city of God is going to come down out of heaven and meet earth. And we're told that in the middle of this city is a throne room. And in that throne room, there is a, the throne of God. And from that throne of God runs the river of life. And that river of life feeds the tree of life. And the tree of life, uh, it, we're told, bears fruit. And it, and it produces leaves that heal the nations. 
There's all kinds of imagery. There are all kinds of symbolism. I don't know what, what it all is, but, but I can tell you this. Do you, do, you, do you see just basically the picture that's painted? Basically, uh, what, 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 what promise is given to those who believe in Christ? He's saying, all the decay and the brokenness in my heart and in yours, healed. All, all, all the decay in your family, all this brokenness in your family, all this strife and this tension in your family, healed. All the decay in our relationships, healed. All of, these, all of the decay in our society, healed. Because of the river of life. And Jesus tells us in that very chapter, he says, he says, who is able to experience this healing? He offers an invitation, and it's specific to a certain group of people. And what we would think is that Jesus, at the end of time, is going to stand up and says, come, anyone who has been good, come and drink of the river of life. Come taste this living water. Anyone who, you've, if you've given it your best shot, Come. If you've, if you've lived right, come. If you have a clean past, come. If you have strong faith, come. But that's not what he says. In Revelation chapter 22, he said, If anyone is thirsty, come and drink. If anyone is thirsty, that's exactly what it says here in John chapter 7. In our minds, we think it's the moral who get to come into heaven and experience this river of life and experience this healing. But what Jesus says, no, 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 it's the thirsty who come in. Let me tell you the difference between a moral person and a thirsty person. This is what a moral person looks like. A moral person, somebody who who relies on the morality, typically goes to God and says, look, I know I've sinned. I know I've made some mistakes. But look at all the good I've done. Look at how many times I avoided the bad. Look at how much good I've done. You owe me. You owe me one. It's time for my paycheck. Look at how hard I've worked. Look at all of these things. Look at my ministry at church. Look at the ways I invested in my family. Look at all the stuff that I've done. You owe me. That's what a moral person says. But what does a thirsty person look like? A thirsty person is somebody who doesn't have anything. A thirsty person isn't somebody who comes to God and says, look at all that I have. They come to God and say, look at, all, look at my need. They don't come claiming their substance. They come claiming their absence. As it's been said, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. The problem is most of us don't have it. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. The problem is most of us don't have it. A thirsty person is somebody who is willing to admit the absence of something, their need for something, not coming claiming to God saying, look what I have, look what I have. You owe me now. Let me in. Thirsty person says, I need you. I need you. Are you willing to admit the absence today of what you truly need? Are you willing to admit the emptiness? We had, we had a guy, Joe just told me this morning, as we were setting up this morning, he said, I had a friend call him today, or I'm not calling today, call him this week, and said, uh, um, he, he said, Joe, will you share with me, will you share the gospel with me, because I need something to fill the emptiness in my heart. Um, I thought, man, if only we could get, if we could get every person to come to just that much clarity and says, I need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you come and help me understand this? Because there is, there is some void in my heart that I cannot fill. Is what the, what the man said. I, I quoted for you guys a few weeks ago, John Paul Sartre, who, who said, he was an atheist, he was a philosopher. He said, that God does not exist, I cannot deny. He didn't believe in a God. But that, God, that I, uh, I hunger for something that only God can provide, that I cannot forget. 
He didn't believe in God, but, were, but he needed something that only God could provide. That only God could provide. I'm reading, I'm sorry, none of this is included, I'm sorry. I'm reading a book, uh, I'm reading the autobiography of Ben Franklin right now, and it's really fascinating um, to, to read through this man's life and all of the, the incredible things that he accomplished. Absolutely fascinating individual. Um, but ben, Benjamin Franklin is a deist, okay? So he, he believes that, there, that there's a God, that we were created by a God, um, but that, you know, he's kind of hands off at this point. You know, he'll eventually, he'll judge, but, you know, whether we've done right or wrong, but basically he doesn't interfere with, with us in, in our day-to-day, okay? Uh, he's a deist. Um, but he was, he, he realized that um, there was something in him that he just knew he needed to live right. He couldn't quite explain it, but he knew that he needed to live well, to live right. And, and, and so he put together these, maybe, you, maybe you're aware of this, these 13 uh, moral virtues, right? There's 12, then he added the 13th eventually, right? And so he, what he decided to do was he was going to try to pursue moral perfection. And he said, it shouldn't be a problem. That's actually what he thought. He thought, I'm sure I can, I'm sure I can manage moral perfection. And he said, all I got to do is spend about one week per, moral, per, per, per virtue and just work as hard as I can, put all of my effort into mastering this one virtue. And once I get that one down, then I'll go to the next one. But what he said, and I'm summarizing here, but what he basically said was, I had no idea how evil my heart was. I had no idea. And actually, the word that he used, the phrase that he used was, I continually fell short. Um, and and he, he, would, he said, as soon as I felt like I was starting to get a handle on one of them, there was something else that creeped up that just took its place. There was, this, he just, there was something in him that he just knew that he needed to live right, that he was not living right. There was something that eluded him, and so he put all of his mastery into it. And for me, if Benjamin Franklin can't get it, I don't know of anybody that can. This guy was amazing. But the bottom line is he, he just could not live well. He could not live right. There was something outside of him that eluded him. Are you willing to admit your need? Are you willing to make Jesus your rock? Because if so, this, the invitation stands today. The same invitation that he made 2,000 years ago stands today. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The invitation is there. And look, friends, not only will he quench the thirst in our life, not only will he fill us with what we need, but he actually says that we then become a fountain of life. I think this is so fascinating. He said, we, be, we begin to overflow. Out of our heart begins to overflow living water. Verse 38 Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you make me your rock, you too will become a fountain. Just as I am a fountain, you too will become a fountain and the water that flows from me to you will now flow out of you. I love that. We're told that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God makes his home in our heart and he fills us and he overflows out of us and he begins to transform us, can conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We begin to look like Jesus. We begin to live like Jesus. We begin to love like Jesus. We begin to serve like Jesus. Now it's slow. It's a process. But he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish it. So if this is the case, and I know most of you here today have tasted and you have uh, experienced that living water, which means for most of you here today, the Spirit of God is living in you. The Spirit of Christ is living in you and is, is in the process of conforming you to His image. And if that's the case, 
what I want to do is I want to point us to a couple of things that we see about Jesus in this passage. Um, some things that he, we, we see in his character and he claims that we too need to take on to ourselves as image bearers of Jesus. Two things, Jesus is pure and Jesus is peculiar. He's pure and he's peculiar. First, Jesus is pure. Verse 16 through 18, uh, it, Jesus says that he exists to do God's will alone. He is committed to God's glory on earth. Um, He seeks no approval from men. He seeks no glory from men. He seeks no praise from men. He is about the will of the Father. He is about the glory of the Father. That's why he he says that because he exists solely for God, that he is true. In other words, he is pure. He is undefiled. For isn't it, friends, when we we begin to live for the glory of of other things, we begin to to, to live for ourselves, or we begin to serve something else or someone else when we become defiled. That's the very definition of sin. But Jesus, in every day, in every way, was pure and undefiled, spotless. And again, if we have been filled with the Spirit of Christ, we too are now called to be holy as He is holy. We are called to be holy as he is holy. Um, so how was he holy? I was, I was just thinking this week, what are some examples of some ways we've seen in the gospel that, God has just, that, that Jesus just proven that he was all about the will of the Father, he was all about the glory of the Father, and just tossed aside the praise of men? I thought of a couple. I don't have much time to share, but um, one of my favorite examples is John 13, where Jesus uh, is in the upper room with his disciples. And... Um, he knows that in only just a matter of hours, they're all going to betray, and they'll just abandon him in his darkest hour. They're just going to abandon him. But he so loves them, and he is, so, he is so committed to doing the will of the Father that he gets down on his hands and knees, and he takes the, the, the dirty, muck, and grimy, feces-covered feet of the disciples in his hands, and he scrubs them, and he washes them, and he cleanses them. Cleanses them. And that is that is. Unbelievable. The, the Son of God takes the feet of these men into his hands and he says, I am willing to cleanse the dirtiest part of you. I'm willing to take the dirtiest part of you into my hands and make you clean. And I'm willing to get dirty while I do it. I'm willing to get smelly while I do it. I'm willing to be uncomfortable while I do it. This is a humiliating act in the eyes of the world. Humiliating. But Jesus wasn't concerned about the praise of men. He wasn't concerned about the way people looked at him. He was solely focused on loving God and loving the world to the glory of God. And then Jesus tells his disciples, now now that you know these things, now that you've seen me do these things, you will be blessed if you do the same. Friends, who are you serving? Who are you loving in that way? Who are you humbly loving and serving today? Um. Joe told me one of his favorite stories. I asked Joe and Joseph out on Friday. I said, what are, what are some of your guys' favorite stories about you know, Jesus living for the will of the Father, tossing aside the praise of men? What are some of your favorite stories? And Joe mentioned that one of his is the, um, when, when Jesus encounters Mary, the, the woman of the city, the sinner. Remember, Jesus is having dinner with one of the religious elite, one of the, the high-ranking religious leaders. And this woman, Mary, comes into the room and... Uh, she falls at his feet, and she embraces them, and she kisses them, and her tears come, come, come falling onto his feet, and she undoes her hair, and she wipes you know, his feet with her hair. 
just a really intimate, loving, worshipful act. Um, and the, the men in the room who are with Jesus are, are, are appalled, are appalled that, that, number one, that the woman would do this, but that, that Jesus would let it happen. Um, if she were to have done that to any other man, they would have just kicked her off out of the way, kicked her out of the room. They would have never, never let this woman touch, touch them. Um, never would have even probably been in the same room with a woman of such ill repute. But what does Jesus do? He accepts it. He accepts her. He, he, he loves her. He defends her to these men. He honors her. He elevates this woman in their eyes. And, and, and Jesus' reputation is ruined with these men. His reputation is ruined. But he doesn't care because he's not, he's not about the praise of men. Are you after the praise of men? Does, it, does, does, does the thoughts of others, does the expectations of those around you, though your neighbors and your people at work, does that dictate what you say and do? Does it dictate how you spend your money? Does it dictate how you spend your weekends? Does it, does it dictate what car you drive? Does it dictate uh, how, you are, how you are in, in your relationships and who you spend time with? Are you after the praise of men? Or are you after the glory of the Father? I'll give you one more example uh, of how Jesus lived first and foremost for the will of the Father. Actually, this isn't an example. This is the example. This is the example. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a few of his disciples out into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he was going to be betrayed in just a few hours from that time. Judas was going to bring soldiers to, to arrest him. And then the very next day, he was going to be crucified on the cross. And Jesus goes out to the garden with a few of his closest friends, and he asks them, he said, guys, I, I really need you to pray for me. And then he goes just a short distance from there, and he falls down just in this despair, in this agony. He, he just prays to God. And this is what he says. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In other words, not my will be done, your will be done. To understand Jesus' statement there to say, not what I will, but what you will. To understand the choice that he made to honor God rather than be concerned about his own convenience, think for a second about that scene. Um, I'm not sure if you've given it much thought before, but if, as we've been looking through the, this, uh, through the Gospel of John together over the last handful of months, one of the things that has really st- stuck out to me was how intentional Jesus um, is at everything he does. He doesn't, he doesn't do things by chance. He doesn't just randomly let things happen that day. He, everything is thought out. He, he, he approaches, he, he moves, he acts, he leads, he teaches, he travels with this incredible intentionality, with this courage, with this boldness, with this conviction, with this authority. Okay? Um, that's, all of Jesus' life and ministry is, is marked by that. But then we get to the end of, his, end of his life. We get to the scene at the garden, and he just falls apart. You ever thought about that? I mean, he just loses it. He just falls apart. And he says, guys, I need you to pray for me. And he falls down and he says, God, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But not as I will, as you will. Your will be done. And can I say something? Don't throw anything at me. Don't walk out the door. Let me finish my thought before you judge me, okay? Let me, let me finish my thought here. Have you ever thought for a second, there are a lot of people over the centuries who have died for their faith. Many, many people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have died for their faith. 
And there are many of them who didn't have this moment of despair that Jesus had. There's many who didn't, who didn't agonize in despair like Jesus did in the garden. Think about the, 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 the Christian men and women who were um, singing hymns as they were torn apart by the lions in the Colosseum. Okay, and, and think about, there were, there were some who were even crucified. Peter was crucified. He, tradition says, I don't know, but tradition says that he was crucified upside down because he didn't, he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was. Okay? Think about Polycarp, who I was reading about Polycarp this week, who, who was martyred and the, his, his uh, uh, executioners were continually giving him the chance to recant. And, he's, and he pretty much just said, come on already, let's get this going. I'm not going to recant. It's not going to happen. Let's just get it going. And so he was burned alive and then spear, you know, stuck with the spear. There, there was Stephen who was, who was glowing because of his, his, his uh, seeing the, the glory and the grace of God and then was praying for the, 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 the forgiveness of his murderers. I mean, there are countless Christian men and women who have been told throughout history have been smiling as they face their death. So the question is, did they have a greater resolve than Jesus? Because when Jesus was about to face his death, he falls apart. He is so stressed out. He is so anxious at this that he's literally sweating blood. People think that maybe that, like his, his capillaries actually burst, the, the capillaries close to the surface of his skin might have actually burst because of the stress that he was enduring so that his sweat actually mixed with blood. That's how stressed out he was. What happened to our confident, courageous, bold Jesus? I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you the difference. Do, does, do these other people have greater resolve than Jesus? Absolutely not. Because Jesus' death was like none other. And it wasn't, just the, hear me, it wasn't just the physical agony that Jesus was about to endure. I don't think that's what weighed so heavily on Jesus. It wasn't just the physical agony. Jesus was about to be struck. The rock was about to be struck by God. He was about to endure the justice, the judgment for our rebellion. The sin, my sin, your sin, the sins of the world was about to be placed on his shoulders. And he was about to bear the wrath and the justice of God, the condemnation of God. You know what condemnation means? Separation from God. The Jesus was about to be rejected by God. Think about the magnitude of God the Father rejecting God the Son. Think about that. Have you, have you ever, imagine for a second today you go home this afternoon and you find out somehow that, that, that some acquaintance that you, that you know, maybe some person down the street or whatever, just rejects you. Just, I don't, for whatever reason, they just write you off. They're like, I don't like that person. I want nothing to do with that person. They condemn you. They reject you. Some, some acquaintance. That might bother you a little bit, right? You're like, so-and-so, I don't remember his name, doesn't like me. Okay, you know, give it a day or two, you'll be fine. Um, what, if, what if a friend rejects you? What if, what if somebody that you've spent some time with rejects you? That somebody that you've invested in rejects you? That hurts a bit more, right? That might keep you up at night for a little while. What if your spouse rejects you? What if your parent rejects you? And that's, that's almost unbearable, isn't it? That's, that's agonizing. Do you, do you understand? The depth of the relationship, the intimacy of the relationship magnifies the pain of rejection. Do you, do you follow me? So imagine now for a second that you've got Jesus, the Son of God, rejected by the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been united in, in this, this perfect, complete fellowship for eternity past. This, this, this unity, this relationship that you and I can't even comprehend. This fellowship that they've experienced. And now for the first time and the only time, the Son is about to be rejected by the Father. Can you imagine? We can't imagine. 
what he is about to endure is beyond our comprehension. This is what he was agonizing about that night. He was going to be rejected by the Father because of my sin and yours. So why do I mention all this? What does this have to do with today? Anybody got any ideas? I'm just kidding. Uh, there, is a, there is a point. Listen. The Spirit... I want you to see the, the choice that Jesus had. I want you to see what he was coming face to face with. God was allowing him the chance to come face to face with what he was about to endure that next day as he was going to be rejected. And yet, in spite of all that, in spite of what he knew he was going to have to face, he still said, not my will, but your will be done. He loved us that much, and he loves God that much that he was even willing to endure that for you and me. And now, friends, listen, the Spirit of Christ now lives in you and lives in me and gives us the power to say, not my will, but your will be done in any situation that you come face to face with. We live, I don't know about you, I, I know how I live. Most mornings I wake up, I don't wake up with this, this incredible peace and, and courage that comes from knowing the Spirit of Christ lives in me and I can face anything that day. Any temptation that comes my way, any opportunity to glorify myself or to do my own will rather than the glory of the Father or the will of the Father, I can face anything. The, the Spirit of Christ, Christ said, not my will but yours be done in light of that. You and I can face anything today because of the Spirit of God that lives in me. Is there an area of your life where you need to say, not my will but yours be done? Not if, what is it? What is it? What is that area of life that you need to surrender and you say, not my will anymore, Lord, but yours be done? Is there an area of your life that you are still living for yourself? Is there something that he's calling you to surrender today? Maybe it's a person you need to forgive. Maybe you need to make a phone call as soon as we're done here today and reconcile with somebody. Maybe it's something that you've been pursuing. It could be an aspect of your career, uh, a hobby, something that you just know is not glorifying to God in the season of your life. You need to repent of that. You need to repent of that. Um, is it your finances? Whose will dictates your finances? Is it my will over my finances or is it God's will over my finances? Is God's will being done in your budget? Um, in your marriage? Is God's will being done in your marriage or is it all about what you're getting out of your marriage? Is it all about me in my marriage? Is there a habit in your life? Maybe there's some, maybe sin is manifesting itself in your life in some specific way that you need to repent of. Again, you approach that sin you don't come cocky, you don't come confident in yourself, but you do come confident in the Spirit of Christ that lives in you, and you say, God, I can, I'm going to approach this sin in my life with confidence that you can do all things, that you can help defeat this sin, you can help conquer this sin in my life. Spirit of God, help me to approach this sin, this habit, repent of it. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3 says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let me mention one last thing to you before we close. Um, this, this third point here is kind of a diagnostic of the second point. We're saying that Jesus is pure, therefore we now are pure. He is holy. We are called to be holy as he is holy. How do you know if that's beginning to happen? How do you know if, if this is beginning to happen in your life, if you're beginning to look like Jesus and live like Jesus and love like Jesus? I'll tell you, you'll, you'll, you'll look peculiar. Jesus is peculiar. You too now will begin to look a little, a little strange. Um, the rock is our provision. The rock is pure. The rock is peculiar. Jesus said to his brothers, um, who were, by the way, he wasn't talking to his disciples. He was talking actually to his brothers. Um, who, and these guys were unbelievers at the time. And he told them, he said, it, you guys, the world doesn't hate you because you are the world. You are of the world. But I am not of the world. Therefore, it hates me. Okay? It hates him. Um, the, the holiness and the love and the message of Jesus Christ was so contrary to the ways of the world that it brought these extreme reactions to him. And Jesus later would tell his disciples that if you are going to follow after me, if you would follow after me, the world is, will hate you as well. The world is going to, to, to be, uh, have animosity towards you in the same way. John 15, Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the th- third point here is a great diagnostic. Are you in any way peculiar? Are you in any way a little strange? A little contrary to the values of the world? The, the, the way that you make decisions, the way that you spend your money, the way that you spend your time, the way that you invest your, your, your energy and the way that you spend your weekends and, and the way that you handle relationships, the way that you uh, forgive people, the way that you embrace people, is it in any way, is it strange? Is it contrary to the ways of the world? If so, there will be times where you will be rejected as a fool. Jesus, in all of his glory and all of his grace and all of his holiness and his love, was bound to have a head-on collision with the world. It was bound to happen, and it did. If we are in Christ, if we are following Christ, we too, there will be moments where we will have a head-on collision with the world. Can you pinpoint any, any, any area of your life where that's happened or that's happening? This is a great diagnostic. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are you living a godly life in Christ Jesus? If so, you will be persecuted. Now, let me, let me offer one last clarification here. This, this doesn't, nor should it happen every day. Okay? You shouldn't be persecuted every day. Um, because if you look at, at, at people's reactions to Jesus, um, there, yes, there were many who wanted to kill him, but there were also many people who loved him and were attracted to him. Okay? Lord, you look at the book of Acts and you look at the early church. There were many people who persecuted the church, the early church in the book of Acts. But there were also many people who were attracted to the early church. So if you're always being persecuted, if you're always being called a fool, you might just be being a little obnoxious. Okay? You might be a fool. Okay? However, if you're never being persecuted, you might be a coward you might not be living like Christ. 
you might not be living to that which you have been called to live. We're called to be like Jesus Christ who both attracted people and repelled people. Nobody ever considered Jesus just kind of a nice guy to have around. Nobody just ever wanted him to just to come and hang out at a barbecue just because he's a nice guy. He's a pleasant guy to have around. And, and, and friends, people won't consider you just a pleasant person to have at a barbecue. We'll just be a, consider you a pleasant guy to have around. You're, you're either going to attract people because they're just sitting in awe and wonder, like, why does this person live this way and think this way and act this way? Or they're going to re- be repelled by you. If people are not at times attracted to you and other times re- repelled by you, there's a good chance you're not. You may not be living like Christ. And again, this third point is simply a diagnostic for our second. How do you know if you are living first and foremost for the will of God, for the glory of God? You're going to cause some waves. Purity is peculiar. It's peculiar. It's strange. If you live in, in this world with the same fearless, self-giving love that Jesus did, you're going to cause some waves. He's our rock that is our provision, who is pure, who is peculiar. And we're out of time. Sorry for going a little late today, guys. Um, let me offer this one last invitation as I close. If you are new here today, and maybe some of this stuff might be new to you, um, maybe today you have come, and like we mentioned earlier, you, are just, you, you, you recognize your need. You recognize the absence of something. You realize that you thirst. You hunger for something that has eluded you. Um, you you've, you've tried running your life. You've tried to pursue these things that you thought, you thought was going to satisfy, but you realize that you are a lousy king. You are a lousy queen of your life. I'm telling you, surrender today. Jesus offers you the peace and the satisfaction and the joy that you have longed for. I can tell you that from personal experience. If this is you today, if you are thirsty, hear Jesus when he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. His peace, will, he will give you the peace you're longing for. He'll give you the satisfaction and he will fill you up with his love and his life that will enable you to live uh, for him and for his glory. Let's pray.